read to us that little section on Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy. Um, we come to Luke 15, um, which, is, which is really maybe the highlight chapter of Luke. Um, certainly these stories are familiar. We've heard them, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. I'm reminded of those little arch books that we had at home, those little arch Bible story books with the kind of were like cartoon pictures. I think they all rhymed. I almost came over to try to find the one about the sheep because I remember that one specifically and then the, the lost boys. Um, it's easy for us to maybe think, well, we know all what that says. We, we got that story down. But I, I hope that what in, in the months past, I, I usually take one of these yellow pieces of paper and I, I draw where the sermons will go for the next two months or whatever, so I try to prepare my heart, and then I think of what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that he doesn't like to do that, he doesn't like to make a program of where things will go, because you never know what the Lord might do. So I had originally planned for four weeks in Luke 15. It's a long chapter, there's a lot to think about, and so we'll, we'll have to see what happens, but I want to just introduce it this morning, and especially do so by looking at the verses in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I would say that a theme verse of mine for my life is verse number 15 of 1 Timothy 1, which says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I always learned it, of whom I am the chief. You ever feel like a failure? You frequently feel like you let the Lord down? Please nod your head so it's not just me that's thinking that. Week to week, we know the Lord. Derek even shared in Sunday school, yet we still commit sin and rebel against God's grace. God has gloriously extended grace to us, and yet we still fly in the face of that with our sin. I think even though we fail, those of us who truly know Christ really want to love what God loves and hate what he hates and think exactly the way he thinks about everything. That seems like an, like an overwhelming task. Like, I need to think the way God thinks about everything. And that should be the goal of every Christian, to have the mind of God about all things. And I would say the way this begins for us is realizing we have to think rightly about our guilt and rightly about grace. This is kind of the start of the message. We've got to think rightly about guilt, and we have to think rightly about grace. And we have to understand that if we do not think rightly about the things that God thinks about, then we are standing in opposition to God. There is no, there is no uh, middle ground on this. Either we think the way God thinks about things, or we stand in opposition to him. Would you understand and agree with that? In other words, if God thinks a certain thing about a certain matter, and let's not be foolish about this, right? Like, what, what do we think God thinks about Snickers bars? I mean, that's not what we're talking about. Okay, what, what does God think about this specific life issue, this specific truth? What is God's opinion on it? If my opinion differs in any way, then I am standing in opposition to God. Okay? Um, not to harp on certain things, but the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, had a huge conference this week in which they agreed to continue to ban homosexual uh, ministers, homosexual clergy, a very close vote. 
doesn't matter what anybody in that room thinks about it. What does God think about it? If God thinks a certain way about it and it hasn't changed and God hasn't given us, God doesn't, like, you know how sometimes you, on your, on your phones and on your devices, like it'll say, update will install later tonight. Right? God doesn't send Bible 2.0. There is no patch needed for the scripture. There is nothing new that's going to be added or God's not going to update his language or update his opinion on certain things. And so we stand opposed to that regarding homosexuality. We stand opposed to that because God stands opposed to that, right? We stand opposed to what God stands opposed, for, opposed to and we stand for what God stands for. Now there's a lot of different things that we have to think rightly about. Sometimes we can think wrongly about guilt and wrongly about grace, and I think we can think wrongly in a couple of different ways. First of all, we can think wrongly about guilt in two ways. Either I don't have any, or I'm so overwhelmed by it that we become ineffective for the Lord. Would you agree with that? Like The, the idea is there are people who, who understand that they are sinners, but they do not understand the true weight of that guilt, the enormity of the offense that it is before God, and so they're not thinking rightly about their guilt. They think lightly about it. And then on the other hand, on the flip side of that, there can be those who are genuinely believers and yet become so overwhelmed with guilt, like they believe God can never use them or God can never sustain them or God can never forgive them, that type of thing. Both ideas are wrong. There has to be a right thinking about guilt. And there has to be a right thinking about grace. And again, there can be two tilted sides. The idea that, uh, that God's grace, uh, now it, it kind of... Um, I, I deserved it. This is something that, that God owed me. Um, or I either, I guess you could say, I don't, I don't need it, or more so you could say, well, I've received it, and now I can live however it is I would like to live because God has graced me and saved me. What we as believers need to have is the same mindset as God about this, and really John Newton, one of my favorite quotes, I've said it many times, understood this. I know two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That is right thinking about guilt and about grace. We all, as believers, need to have a godly sensitivity to our sin. We don't overemphasize it, and we don't underemphasize it. By overemphasize it, I mean, I mean, it seems like it would be impossible to overemphasize sin, but the idea that once it's confessed, where is it? It's gone. It doesn't need to be held against us any longer. And I also want, as believers, all of us, to have an equally vivid appreciation for God's grace. Paul, John Newton, other spiritually mature believers have always thought properly about these two subjects. If we believe that salvation is all of grace, and we do, then we also see our sin as horrifically sinful. Does that make sense? When we have a proper view of our salvation, that it comes only through the divine grace that God bestows, we also have a right hatred of our sin. In other words, the person who prizes and values grace the most also feels the greatest amount of sorrow towards their sin. And that is because that person realizes they have no claims on God's mercy. That God's mercy is not something that we are owed or that we deserve 
but rather it is a gift to those who are incapable of saving themselves. I was with some folks last night, had, a, had an enjoyable evening, and I, I, in the course of the discussion I mentioned this, and so I'll mention this again. In, in, in all of history, there are two groups of people. There are redeemed people and there are unredeemed people. There are believers and there are unbelievers. What has God bestowed upon believers that has caused them to be believers? What has he bestowed upon them? Mercy, grace, mercy. He's, he's given them mercy. What is God bestowing on the group of unbelievers? He's bestowing justice on them. What do both groups deserve? Justice. But God, according to Paul here, while he was part of that other group, while he was insolent, while he was a blasphemer, while he was a persecutor of the church, he obtained, I think is what King James says, ESV Price has received, he received mercy. That's verse number 13. I'd acted ignorantly, but God gave this mercy. And so Paul understood that free grace of Christ was the only source of our salvation, which means he also denounced his own personal sin. And so while he denounces his own personal sin, he praises God that he receives the mercy. And he does both in this section, right? I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord. He appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And so he provides us with this faithful saying. And there are five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. There are five places where he says this is a faithful saying. So this is one of the faithful sayings, a believable truth. And the faithful saying of this particular passage is this. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. What is that? What is the letter G word? We're talking about that. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is grace, of whom I am chief. That is guilt. This is what we're talking about. Grace and guilt. I got to think rightly about grace. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I got to think rightly about guilt. I am the chief. I am the foremost one. And Paul says this truth, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, is worthy of universal acceptance. It is a statement that you can, to say it in our words, take to the bank. You can count on this. There is no doubt that if you put your weight and trust in this truth, it will sustain you. It is a faithful promise. He came to save sinners. Surprised that you're not saying amen to that, but okay. Maybe you're just overwhelmed with it. Repeat that to yourself. Say it to other people and never doubt it. Never hesitate over that truth. Listen, Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I was the most needy. I was the worst. Land on that faithful saying. Let's note three things about this saying. First, let's note number one, that he came in the world to save sinners. That seems like a pretty straightforward statement. Right? Yet our friends in Luke 15, 1 and 2, the Pharisees and the scribes did not grasp that because as they saw Jesus doing this mission, actually we'll look at Luke 15 in a minute, but it says there that this man receives tax collectors and sinners and even eats with them. Well, that makes sense because he came into the world to save them. So eating with them seems okay. If he's planning on saving them, Maybe eating with them is okay. Maybe receiving them is okay. These Pharisees and scribes 
Are they thinking God's thoughts about this matter? Yes or no? No, so they are standing in opposition to God on this matter. They are standing in opposition to God on the whole mission of Jesus Christ. Almost in, 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 in complete contrary uh, belief to what Jesus is here to do. Listen, Jesus did not came, come to save respectable people. Jesus did not come to save people who were already doing their best. The gospel is not for good people. As if I can do my best and realize I can't get all the way there, and so Jesus kind of pushes me over the top and tips the scales in my favor. As if I was getting a B- minus on the test, and Jesus came in and got the ones that I got wrong right so I can have 100%. Or I made it three-quarters away around the track, whatever illustration you want to use. I couldn't finish, and Jesus came and finished for me. That's nonsense. That's actual heresy. Jesus did not come to save good people. He came to save sinners. Sinners are the object of God's saving. So it makes sense that I want to say to him, I'm one of those, right? I need saving. I acknowledge my sin. If you came to save sinners, over here, over here, that's me. In fact, I'm on the top of that heap. I'm the foremost of all of them. Not for the religious or the righteous, because there are none righteous. All deserve justice. Christ came to give mercy and save sinners. Let's note this. Second, let's note what the condition of sinners is. What is the condition of a sinner that Jesus came to save? When you think of Christian in the story of Pilgrim's Progress and his despair in reading the book that announces that the city of destruction is going to be destroyed and he has a burden on his back, he's in absolute terror. And no one else in the city is. Pliable goes along with him for a while until they get to the slough of despond and then Pliable falls in and he can get out because he doesn't have the burden on his back because he doesn't have the recognition of his own sin and his own guilt. What Christian is faced with is realizing that I have broken the commands of a holy God. And he recognized, as all of us do who have come to Christ, that our heart is completely and totally bent towards evil. And that the end of that road is calamity for us. It's eternal separation from God. That is the condition of a sinner. Why does a sinner need saving? A sinner needs saving because that sin has separated us from God and has destined us to eternal hell. I mean, that's the tragedy when that recognition comes over us. When we realize we stand condemned and unable to save ourselves, infinitely lost, and in need of not assistance, but of infinite mercy. And so thirdly, we note this final thing about this passage before we end up to Luke, is that there is great wisdom then in accepting this statement. Okay? 
When we think that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and then we think of the condition of a lost sinner who has violated the commands of God both by nature and by action and stands under the wrath of God, condemned, controlled by darkness, dead in trespasses and sin, completely separated, without hope, without God in this world, alienated from Him. To be carnally minded is death. That's the end of that road. There is a way that seems right in a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. We've said this before. There are a lot of ways to God, but only one way is the way that leads to peace with God. Everyone's going to face God. There's a lot of ways you're going to get to God, but you're going to get to Him either in judgment or in mercy. The only way to come to Him is through Jesus Christ. So there, once we see that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that I am one of those and I need saving, then it would be a wise person who would say, I am going to receive this statement. I am going to accept this truth. I am going to lean my weight on the statement of this faithful saying. Understand this, that acknowledging your sin and accepting the salvation of Jesus Christ is the most urgent need of every person in this room. You must cry out to God in repentance and receive in faith the work that Christ came to achieve for you. There is nothing more important than that for you today. What is it that Christ has done to save us? He has secured salvation for us through His atonement. He has earned salvation where we could not earn it through His active obedience, through His passive obedience. His active obedience in that He committed no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. Everything he did was in complete accordance to the word and will of God. And then his passive obedience is dealing with what he willingly underwent. The wrath of God, the mocking of men, the brutal crucifixion, the taking on of our sins. It is by the abandonment of our own lives and leaving and repenting of our own sins and hopes and works and merits, and accepting the work of Christ that gives us salvation. We are not saved by our own merits. We are saved by His mercy. If you have not landed on that truth, your soul is in eternal peril. It's hanging over the depths of hell ready at any moment by any circumstance or happenstance that could happen in your life or in some sort of circumstance that would take your life and you would then be destined completely without hope, gone, separated from God, in a real place with conscious understanding for all of eternity. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone who died apart from Christ were simply annihilated? Wouldn't that be great? Yes, it would, but that is not what is going to happen. We will not simply cease to exist as if before we were born. We will have a conscious existence of our separation. I don't know how more urgently I can plead with you to trust Christ than I'm doing. Will you not today turn your life to God and turn your back on your sins and receive his mercy? Listen to what Isaac Watts says in one of the hymns we don't sing called How Sad Our State by Nature Is. He says this, A guilty, weak, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. Right thinking about your guilt and right thinking about his grace. You are guilty. 
I'm not saying I'm not too, but we, we are guilty, but you are guilty. And God, in his justice, will punish you. But he sent Christ to save you. Won't you receive that? Won't you receive that? Go to Luke 15, please. Turn your attention there. That's quite an introduction to the passage, but I wanted to lead us into that because it reveals to us how the Pharisees and scribes stand in opposition to all that I just said. And if you will not receive Christ, you're joining that category. You're part of that group. Okay? The Pharisees did not accept this faithful statement primarily because they didn't accept their own sinfulness. Right? They didn't, they didn't think they needed a Savior because they were already, you know, at the top of their game religiously, spiritually, so to speak. They were, they were spiritual successes, and so when Jesus comes and says, I'm here to rescue and deliver you, they're kind of thinking, well, from what? Because we're, we're on our A game. Jesus here in this passage of Luke 15 is doing precisely what Paul said he would do. He is reaching out to lost sinners. Can I show you something in the passage? And this is just by way of review. We're only going to get through verses 1 and 2 today based on this introduction, and then we'll, we'll scurry through it a little faster. But let me point out a few words to you. Look, look at these verses with me and see if you recognize the theme. Verse number 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them? End of verse 4. Go after the one that is lost. Verse number six, the end of it. Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep, which was lost. Verse eight, the woman having silver coins loses one. And then verse number nine, the end of it. Rejoice, I have found the coin that was lost. And then we have down in verse number 24, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then we have in verse number 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and now he is found. What's the word, folks? Lost. And we call unbelievers the lost. This is a tough word. Um, the word occurs over and over in this parable, and the meaning is not there there is a Greek word for something that is lost um, that doesn't even occur in the Bible. Um, the writers of Scripture did not choose, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to use that word. That word never appears in Scripture, just like, you know, I lost something. Um, meaning misplaced, meaning can't find. That's not what this word means. This word doesn't just mean can't find, misplaced. The word means to be destroyed or to perish. It is not as though something has just been misplaced, and so the situation isn't as tragic as it really, you know, should be, like for instance, where are my reading glasses? I've lost them. Well, go to Rite Aid and for two bucks you can have another pair, right? Uh, where's, where's that $5 bill? I lost it. And that's a little bit critical, but still not a big deal. This, the sheep, the coin, the son, is called lost, meaning that that condition is perilous because it is a, in a position of destruction. It is in a position of perishing. Crazy. And so Christ is coming to save people who are what? Perishing. Who are under the threat of this destruction. And we have the Pharisees who don't even want Jesus to do that. Right? This guy is eating with people 
who are what? What's the key word? They are lost. They are lost. They are people who are under destruction. And because they recognize their sinfulness, they're coming unto Jesus. And Jesus welcomes sinners. Ain't that a great thought? He welcomes these sinners. He is receiving them, eating with them, because this is his purpose in coming. Now listen, this is not an isolated incident where the Pharisees and scribes get upset because Jesus is talking to some sinful people. Luke 5, 29 and 30. Luke 19, verse 7. This is a constant picture of the Pharisees. But praise God, as we think about Paul's doxology, even back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, after he talks about salvation, now unto the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Because of what he did for me, I once was in that position of destruction, but he found me, praise God. Right? The point of each of these stories is this. Something is lost, then something is found, and then there is joy. The whole key of the passage is joy. Joy, joy, joy. It's, that's all over this passage. Look at it. Verse 5 again. Let's, let's do the same thing we just did with lost. Look at verse 5. When he found it regarding the shepherd, he lays it on his shoulders. Say it. Rejoicing. Uh, even as, and then he calls his friends together and says, Rejoice with me. Then in verse 7, just like that situation would bring great joy, I want to tell you this, that there's more comparative joy in heaven when a sinner repents. That's a great thing. When the shepherd goes out and finds his sheep, joy, wow, found that sheep. There's more joy when a sinner repents. Same thing in the story of the coin, right? Same thing in the story of the coin. Verse number 9, she calls her friends and neighbors together, rejoice with me, I found the coin that I lost. Just so, verse 10, I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then look at verse 23 and 24, the story of the sons. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. In the end of verse 24, let us celebrate. In the end of verse 32, or the beginning of verse 32, it is fitting that we should celebrate. There's singing, there's dancing, there's a festival, there's food. There is great joy. The title of this message is this. What is the title of this message? God's joy in saving the lost. Now listen, I said at the beginning of the message that I want to be a person, even though I'm a failure so often, and you kind of nodded your heads and didn't agree as readily as I wish you would have, but we, we all agree that even though we love God, we, we fail and we grieve over that and we sorrow over that and we wish we, we, wish we uh, could succeed more in conquering our sin. But it should be the heart's desire of every believer to think the way God thinks about everything. About everything. What does God think about the lost? What does God think about the lost? <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> When a, I told you the title of the message, right? God's joy in saving the lost. God wants to save the lost, and when one is saved, God is fired up about it. It brings God joy to see people found. 
So if I'm going to think like God, if I'm going to think like God, do I have that same joy? I'm going to talk about that more in a minute, but do I have that same joy? And I want to ask a question that we sometimes don't answer. A- ask, we think a lot about God, we think a lot about his holiness, we think a lot about his, uh, his um, uh, the, the omni, uh, omnip- omnipresent, omnipotence, omniscience. We think about these great and glorious characteristics of God, but what is it that brings God joy? What is it that brings God joy? These parables clearly show the joy of God, the joy of angels, the joy of heaven. Why is it that we experience joy? Why do we have joy about anything? Because joy is sourced in God. God is the giver of joy. Romans 15, verse 13, Paul says, May God fill you with joy. God has joy to give because God is full of joy. God is the source of joy. Well, what brings him that joy? Well, one thing that clearly brings him this joy is when a lost person is found. And this is more than just in this passage. I want to walk you through some Old Testament passages just really quick. Deuteronomy 30. I just want you to see them. I want you to see them because it's not just a one-place type of thing where God has joy in this. Deuteronomy 30. You're going to have to be quick. I know some of these passages, maybe our fingers don't find them as often as others. But uh, Deuteronomy 30 Uh, In the second giving of the law, Moses here, close to the end of it, is talking about the people of Israel and kind of gives them these commands about being obedient, etc., etc. And then, uh, well, you know what, rather than do that, let's read verse 2. Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember, they, they had just come off of this long time disobedience, and now he's saying, come on, let's go into the land and be on the same page. Uh, Verse number five, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. I will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Listen now. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord, again, will take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. God takes joy in those he has delivered. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah. You probably haven't done your devotions in Zephaniah in a while. Towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's the fourth book forward from the New Testament. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse number 14 to 17, sing aloud. It's talking about restoring Israel and uh, uh, after, after it returns unto God. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will never again fear evil. And on that day, it will be said in Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And here's what the Lord is saying. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And when he saves, he will rejoice over you with gladness. In Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, Jesus says, 
to those who were faithful, to those who were believers, enter into the joy of your master. In John 17, he prays that his joy would be fulfilled in his followers. In John 1, John, his follower, writes that he has commanded us these things to have fellowship with him, that his joy might be in us. God has joy in recovering the lost. His great and expansive grace is so vast that he rejoices in reconciling rebels. He is not, in other words, reluctantly merciful. Right? Reluctantly merciful. All right. God is joyful in his reconciliation of rebels. It, it's, it astonishes me. This is Paul writing in 1 Timothy 1 again that, that I could be a blasphemer. I could be a persecutor. I could be a, uh, I could be a willful rebel of all the things that God states in his word. And I, could, I could be totally antagonistic to everything, yet he in his grace and mercy reaches out and saves me and then is happy he did it. When he should be saying, you get in there, you rascal. Right? He takes joy when Andy trusted Christ. It thrilled God's heart. Right? There was more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. He takes pleasure in giving his salvation. And in taking one who was perishing and destined for destruction and finding that one and saving that one. And that's the central theme of this chapter, Luke 15. God's joy in saving the lost. So let me ask these two questions while we bring this down. Okay. We already asked the question, what brings God joy? We know the answer based on all that we've studied, Luke 15. You know, and then you have these people, Luke 15, 1 and 2, these Pharisees and scribes. Uh, this is a fantastic thing. We'll just say it real quick back in 15, 2. It, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. That's an onomatopoeia. I was all set to say that right, and then my mouth kind of had a stroke. Um, onomatopoeia, where, where the word sounds like what it is, right? Like, isn't that like buzz? The word sounds like it is. This in the Greek is a word, I, th I think it's the word dagagadzo, dagagadzo. It, it almost sounds like grumbling, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, that, that's what they're doing. So they're standing in complete opposition to what brings God joy. So the question is, what brings me joy? Is it some trivial, temporary thing? Is it my health, my strength, my things, my family? And the thing is, whatever, whatever brings you joy, you know what you do? You work hard pursuing it. Right? Whatever brings you joy, you work hard pursuing that. And I say again, I said at the beginning, I said in the middle, I'll say it again. I want to think like God. I want to think like God. So am I like God in this way where the joy that I have is the joy of seeing others who were lost come to Christ? Or do I stand more in the position like the Pharisees and self-righteous scribes 
almost angry at other sinners who are simply in the same condition I was in prior to knowing Christ and look down my self-righteous spiritual nose at these wicked sinners as if they were to darken our door and approach the gospel that they don't deserve. Right? I could grumble like that like the Pharisees. Or, if my joy is God's joy because I want to think like God, I want to act like God, I want to love what God loves, and if my joy is the joy of seeing the lost, I can't just say, I'm really joyful when the lost are saved because if that's my joy, I'm going to do what? I'm going to do everything I can to pursue that joy. I want to succeed in receiving that joy, so i got to be like the shepherd. i got to be like the woman. i got to be like the father because that's God in the story. God is the shepherd. God is the woman. God is the father. He is the one looking for the lost. Is my heart like that? Is my heart like that? Do I look for the sinner? Do I long for the sinner to come to Christ? Do I take the gospel of peace to that person and say, will you trust this, this wonderful, faithful saying that Christ Jesus wants to save sinners? And I don't care how sinful you are, you can have this gospel if you're willing to trust and repent. And great joy will come upon me when that happens. Or do I sit in church and just kind of wait for my thing to happen? And, you know, boy, we got a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of stuff, huh? And thankfully, the Lord saved us. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. Do you pity the lost? Do you prioritize the lost? Or do you simply sit in an elevated seat of judgment above the filth of the world, uncontaminated by their wickedness? Ignorant and unconcerned about their lives, their needs, their trials, and above all, their eternal souls. If that's you, then you are right there in Luke 15, 2. You are the Pharisee. You are the scribe. Standing in total opposition to the Spirit of Christ and of the character of a joyful, seeking God. Don't say it's your joy to see the lost saved if you're not doing anything about it. And there is so much you can do about it. We have 30 to 35 families that are represented on our Wednesday night church services. Who's, who's reaching out to those people? Folks, who's going into those homes? Who's talking to those people? Who's doing that? Who's doing that? Are you doing that? Well, is Andy just supposed to do all that? If that's your joy to see those lost saved, then get in the game, folks. Need you. Need, your, need the teamwork of, of, like what Derek was saying, what a beautiful picture that was this morning, wasn't it? With the shield and everybody coming down and the wall. Man, if we, could, if we could grasp this, there's so much we could be doing. So many people we could reach out to. How are we seeking them? We'll talk about more of this next week. Shepherd leaves the 99, goes to find a one. Woman stops her whole day for a coin. We want to say that it is our joy and that we would be exhilarated to see who would be exhilarated to see someone come up here after a service and say, I found the Lord. He found me. He saved me. Praise God. Wouldn't we all say, hallelujah? Wouldn't we? I sure hope we would. But we're not willing to go out there and put in the labor to do that. Then it's not really our joy. 
Please get busy with that. Start abandoning our lives and prioritizing the lost like Jesus did and like God, our joyful-seeking Father, did. And if you're lost, man, I warn you. I warn you with all of the backing and authority of the Word of God that He is coming to one day justly repay you for your sins. And you are so blessed beyond millions of people in the world because you have heard the gospel today. As many maybe have never heard it or never will hear it. God is like serving up the gospel on a platter for you to just say, do you want it? And all you have to do is by faith and repentance receive it and you are then transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're no longer under his wrath. You've received his mercy. You're no longer destined for hell. You're destined for heaven. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're a son or daughter of God. And I would urge you to trust him today. Let's pray about this and we'll close. Our Father, we thank you so much for seeking us, for finding us, for loving us, for taking joy in doing the work of salvation for us. We take no credit. We acknowledge no merit in ourselves. And we would pray, God, that the study of Luke 15 for this next month would be a life-changing moment for each of us, whether it be a transformational salvation moment. I pray today that even people who are thinking about trusting Christ would give full consideration to this faithful saying about Christ saving sinners, help them think rightly about guilt and about grace, and may they turn to Christ. Child, teen, adult, there's people in here who need to be saved. And Father, for those of us who, who more align with the Pharisees, <laughs> Please, God, help us find our joy where you find it in the recovery of the lost. Please, Lord, save souls and let us be a part of it. Let us share in that joy. Help our thinking be transformed through the study of Luke 15. It would be more and more in line with the heart and mercy of our Heavenly Father. And we thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.